The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. The reason the lights are a bit low is so you can see the screen. Um, so I apologize for that if you're finding it difficult to uh, see your Bible or stuff like that. Um, bear with us. Um, we're continuing our uh, preaching series, uh, which we began a few weeks ago, called Secure Faith in a Loving God. And this has been an interesting series uh, because we've been really kind of grappling with some difficult questions Uh, We looked at God and suffering, we've looked at God and discipline, and this morning I have the unenviable task of speaking to you about God and judgment. God and judgment. Uh, Now, judgment is really trending in culture at the moment, in our social media, um, thanks to Israel Folau and the debate that's kind of raging around that. And I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the questions that keeps coming up is, Will such and such a person go to hell? Or if somebody does this, will that mean that they're going to go to hell? And I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong question. Even though that's the question that every commentator, every media personality wants Christians to answer. The Bible actually never answers that question. So for a Christian to try and answer that question would be to step outside what the Bible actually Kind of clearly states. You know the question that comes up over and over again in the Bible, which I think is actually the more pertinent question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that many people in the New Testament actually come to Jesus with. And they ask him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I think that's a better question. The whole topic of, of God and judgment is a really difficult one. And, and for many people, it's the thing that turns them off God because they really struggle to reconcile God's love and God's judgment. It doesn't make sense and they can't get their head around that. And I, I know it's a really difficult question for us to wrestle with. And the question that often gets posed looks a little bit like this. Why, you know, how can a loving God send good people to hell? And maybe you've encountered that question in your own journey of faith or in your workplace or in your school or university where people have asked you that question when they know that you're a Christian. And to be honest, this is a big obstacle um, that people have in their minds and understandably so. And right from the get-go, I want to suggest to you that I'm not going to be able to resolve this question for you in such a convincing way that you go away going, yep, I'm satisfied with that answer. I can't do that. What I'm going to try and, try and do this morning is to, again, as we've done before, try and identify some of the assumptions that lie beneath this question that the Bible kind of speaks to. And so I'm going to ask Natalie to come and read our passage this morning. And you can follow along. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, They will be up on the screen. But if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn and follow along with us. Hello. We're reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. So if you'd like to follow along, that would be great. Or else it'll be up on the screen. Make every, every... Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, 
and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of our new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thank you. So, as difficult as this idea of God and judgment is, it is a central doctrine to the Christian faith. And I want to say that up in the get-go. And without this idea of God's judgment, we, we don't really appreciate and understand God's love. It, it makes no sense. And without this idea of, of judgment, God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, those words, they, they lose their meaning, they lose their power and their, and their focus. Uh, without the idea of God's judgment, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus has no purpose. Without the idea of God's judgment, we really don't have any hope that one day everything wrong and everything broken with our world will ever be fixed. And so as uncomfortable and as difficult as it is, we have to sit with this and try and get our heads around it. And part of the struggle we have is we're talking about God and there are some aspects about God that we will never fully wrap our head around. And this, I think, is one of them. So uh, I hope that as we journey through this passage and, and kind of see what the writer here is, is saying that helps us understand the assumptions and critique those assumptions, I hope you come to a place where you can kind of be re reassured about God's love because that is our theme and that is our series, that having this secure faith in a loving God. So the first assumption I guess I want to speak to is that the almighty creator of the universe can be reduced down to one attribute. In this instance, love. 
Because the statement goes, how can a loving God, etc., etc. But the Bible says that God is much more than just one attribute. And in our passage, the, the writer describes God as a consuming fire. He describes God as the judge of all. And in this section, we, we, we encounter different metaphors and symbols that speak to the holiness of God. Now again, we, we understand holy in a very different way that may, that may be how the Bible describes God in His holiness. So I've got some definitions that maybe will help us understand that. If you want to put them up, please. Holiness is moral and ethical wholeness or perfection. Freedom from moral evil. Holiness is one of the essential elements of God's nature required of His people. Another writer, Kurian, says this, holiness of God is perfect in righteousness and infinite in wisdom and goodness, commanding adoration and reverence. And holiness, when used of human beings, a spiritually perfect person or someone pure in heart of unimpaired innocence and proven virtue. They're not just people who wear clerical robes. This is a moral, ethical character. And God demonstrates that in its ultimate degree, in complete perfection. And as the, the judge of all, we're told in this reference, the Bible describes God's judgment as being perfect and righteous and faultless. I've just got three references for you as a summary of what the Bible teaches throughout uh, Genesis 18, all the way from the beginning, this is, this is an interesting one because this is Abraham commenting on God's coming judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. For be, far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Psalm 96, again, the Psalms wrestle with God's activity in the world and these writers are sometimes voicing out their lack of understanding and their frustration and this is taken from one of those Psalms and it says, let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Or Isaiah 5, 16, when the nation of Israel were under God's judgment and didn't understand what they were going through. And the writer there says, but the Lord Almighty will be ex exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. You see, when we try to reduce God down to one attribute, love, holiness, power, whatever it might be, we, we drift away from how the Bible describes God to be. And we need to be careful that as humans that we're not trying to understand God by the way we perceive Him to be rather than how He has revealed Himself to be. Even if we can't fully understand how we can reconcile some of these things that seem at odds with each other. I want to suggest to you that God cannot truly be loving unless He's also a judge, unless He's also just, unless He's also holy. That's the first assumption. I think the second assumption is probably the one that strikes at the heart of this question. It assumes that we're good people. And again, I think we all do this. If we've been born in a religious family, if we've grown up in the church, I think we're more prone to this. We think we're good people. We, we think we're somehow better, different than those out there somehow. 
and maybe you know even growing up in in a western country we think that we're better than those out there those pagan people who do horrible things that we would never do in our civilized way of living and i think we all have those kind of benchmarks that approves our behavior while condemning the behavior of others but again the bible when it examines the human condition another writer paul makes it quite clear that really there's no one good no one good romans 3 just uh, one of the things that he quotes again from the old testament says this there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks god all have turned away they have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one and then at the conclusion of his argument because it is a prolonged argument in this chapter he comes to his concluding thought in chapter 3 verse 23 and he says this if all have sinned and fall short of the standard that God has set and our writer uses very similar language and he says see to it and he's warning Christians here he says see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God you see God's standard is very different to ours. And I think that's an assumption that we make that we're, we're good people. And how can God, even in His holiness, do that to good people? See, none of us would have a problem with God being a judge to the child molesters or the serial rapers or the murderers or Adolf Hitler or whoever it is in your mind that is the most evil of people we, we would want that we would want God to pay them back for all the things that they've done or maybe you can make it personal and you've been deeply hurt and deeply wounded and betrayed and and horrible things have been done to you and you want justice and you want God to be just in that situation against them and by doing that we somehow excuse ourselves and we go well but not on me I don't deserve that but in this passage the writer makes clear and again remember he's writing to Christians he says to us here that that we need to be careful he says verse 15 see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God which we've already looked at and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many he's referring to an incident in the old testament in deuteronomy 29 where the writer there uses almost the exact phrase about having a bitter root that that grows up to cause trouble and defile many and in that context the writer there in deuteronomy has in mind idolatry has in mind where the people of god are turning away from god and so we can we can fall short of god's grace by turning away from the grace of god and that's what was happening in Deuteronomy. And they were pursuing idols and other gods. And, and we can do that where we turn away from God's grace and rely on ourselves or pursue other idols, whether they may be even good things in our lives. Work, career, ministry, reputation, fame, money, stuff. And the writer says, be careful that you don't fall into that same trap that the Old Testament people of God fell into. And then he goes on to talk about another way that we can fall short of the grace of God. And he says this, that beware of sexual immorality. 
He says, see to it that no one, verse 16, is sexually immoral. Now, again, that is something we're familiar with. But that word there covers a whole range of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And so, again, sometimes we want to make distinctions that these things are okay and these things are not okay. But the Bible says that any sexual activity is not okay outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And that includes pornography. And many Christians struggle with that would come under that. It, it includes having inappropriate workplace relationships with someone of the opposite sex. It, it includes people who get divorced that are not divorcing on biblical grounds. It includes people who are boyfriend and girlfriend but are being very sexually promiscuous even though they might not go all the way. It includes all of that. And as Christians, the Bible calls us to a consistent sexual ethic, not to make differentiations. The Bible says here very clearly, and again, speaking to Christian people, don't turn away from God's, don't fall short of God's grace by rejecting God's grace through blatant immorality. In the previous, in chapter 10, listen to how strongly the writer says it here. And again, remember, he's writing to Christians. Verse 26 of chapter 10, he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth or grace, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's written to Christians. So we can turn away by rejecting God's grace in sexual immorality. The third prohibition or warning he gives is very, very interesting. He says here, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought blessings, sought this blessing with tears. He could not change what he had done. Now, when you read the Old Testament account of Esau, there's not really much bad that's said about him. He's just an average guy. He loves to go out hunting. He loves his food. Uh, he's a hairy man. You know, like, not that that's anything wrong with that. I mean, he just seems like the guy next door, just the average guy. And yet, in the New Testament, in our passage, it describes him as godless. Why would it say that? Well, I think what the writer is getting at is that the problem that Esau encountered, even though he was a good person, was that he marginalized God. God wasn't the center of his life. He, he pursued the temporal things. He pursued the here and now. He pursued what immediately satisfied his need right then, right there in the moment, and kind of lost interest in the inheritance that God had for him. And these Christians that this writer is writing to, they're at, at risk of doing this because they're wanting to go back to Judaism because it was safer. The persecution they were, they were experiencing was making it really hard and they just wanted to take the easy way out. They just wanted to settle for the here and now comfort, for the relaxed, easy way of Christian living that doesn't encounter any hostility or rejection or pain. And the writer is saying, be careful, don't go down that path because that was the path that godless Esau chose. The here and now comfort. So as we consider these things, you see that really we, we all stand condemned, guilty, under God's wrath and judgment. There's no one good. So we can't really make that assumption that God sends good people anywhere. The third assumption I want to speak to is this idea that 
somehow good people have the right to be in God's presence. That that's the, that's the standard, that that's the benchmark, that that's the criteria. But who told us that? Because when we go to the Bible, it's clear that God's standard, God's benchmark, it's very, it is very, very different. In, in, this, in the verses that we read, the writer begins, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Why? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's what it takes to be in the presence of God. Now, this writer is just picking up what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus says the same thing. He says, only the pure in heart will see God. But see, in our minds, we've made this mistake or this assumption that achieving a certain level of goodness is good enough to bring us before a holy God. Well, that's a wrong assumption. God's standard is holiness, moral perfection. So our greatest goodness will never be good enough to be accepted by God. And in Isaiah, the writer says there that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God and our sins just blow us away. And in this passage, as he goes on to talk about the writer talks about this, the mountain, and he's referring to the Old Testament where God came down on Mount Sinai to give his Old Testament community, the Old um, Covenant community, his law. And this event was such a display of God's holiness. There's fire and smoke and earthquakes, which are all symbols, a technical theological term is a theophany, which is, con- is there to convey God's holiness, his, his otherness, his separateness. And God's holiness was so thick on this mountain that the instructions that they're given is that even animal even accidentally touches it. It was to be stoned to death. Now, you may be sitting there going, what is the point of that? Well, the point of it is that if that animal touched the mountain, the holiness of God would be transferred to the animal. And that animal would be carrying around in the camp the holiness of God. And if that animal touched another human, it would be devastating. Which is why... They were given the instructions to stone the animal from a distance. Because for the holiness of God to connect with our unholiness would be devastating. It would be like getting too close to the sun. It would just obliterate you. It would be like being exposed to radioactive material. God's holiness is so beyond anything we can compare that it would just consume us. And so the warning is that we need to get our standard in line with God's revealed standard in His Word and and not think that if we can just climb enough goodness ladders and earn enough goodness points and do enough good things and live in a good enough life, then that will be adequate to bring us before the holy God of the universe. Now that's all the bad news. But the last assumption is the one that the the writer here wants to most critique and speak to. And this assumption that that God sends people to hell. And nowhere does the Bible talk about God wanting to do that. In fact, the Bible actually says that God is pleading with people to respond to his offer. God's desire, we're told in in 1 Timothy, is for all men to know him, for all people to know him. Men, women, children, young and old, to experience his forgiveness and his grace. 
and to come and be a part of his family and his community. And that's why this writer, he talks about this other mountain that we have come to. And, he, and look at what he says. He says, but, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come. He's speaking already of this future reality as a present reality. You have come in, in the spirit to this heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In, the, in, in chapter 10, again... Just before that, that passage on that strong warning, he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That is his body. You see, this writer is expressing what is everywhere in the Bible, that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want to send anyone anywhere other than to gather people to himself and give them this incredible eternal bliss, living with him forever in this heavenly city where we can come with boldness before the judge of all. There is no fear. There is no reluctance because of what Jesus has done, the mediator of this covenant, the blood that's been sprinkled that covers over us. And the reason that we can have that assurance and that confidence is because Jesus experienced the fullness of God's judgment. He experienced the wrath of God poured out on himself so that we can be pardoned. And if we trust in Jesus, if we trust in his work on the cross as in his life and his death and his resurrection, then there is no debt remaining for us. All the guilt is gone. The, 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 the sentence of condemnation and wrath and judgment that hangs over our head is removed once for all. Because Jesus bore it all on himself. You see, so it, it isn't a wrong assumption to say God wants to send people to hell. No, no. God wants you, me, to be in heaven with him forever. But we reject it. We say no. And then we complain that the God of justice and holiness demands holiness and executes his rightful consequence on people who reject him and his offer of forgiveness. It's like blaming the firefighter who climbs a building, who puts his life in great risk to get to the window, to rescue someone. And that person looking down going, no, that's too scary. I don't know if I can trust you and walks away from it. And that firefighter having to return down to the ground and be blamed for not saving the person in the building. When God says, come, I have done everything. I have made the way. My wrath, my judgment has been atoned, covered, paid for, dealt with, sorted. If you just trust me. If you just trust me. And so the writer ends with a plea. And I want to end with a plea. He says, see to it. Again, that same phrase he's used before. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
And he says, he takes them back to the, the, the old mountain, the mountain of Sinai, the, 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 the representation of God's holiness. He said, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? You see, the Old Testament, yeah, they experienced the, the consequences of their rejection of God, but they didn't know what we know. They, they didn't have what we have seeing Jesus bearing God's wrath on the cross, how much more culpable are we? How much more responsible are we? And so he says, don't refuse him. And he says it as a warning. He says, you, you, you don't need to, so be careful that you don't. And then he issues a plea in, in, the, in the positive He says, verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You see, because the writer says in between those two ideas that there is still a future judgment to come. God is going to shake everything again and everything that's not permanent, that's not eternal, that's not holy, that's not of him will be obliterated. And only what's of him and what is eternal and what is holy will remain And you don't have to be caught up in the unholiness. And so the plea goes out. Will you respond? Will you listen? And again, I want to tell you, you don't have to take my word because I'm just another voice from earth. Don't listen to a sporting star. Don't listen to a church or a pastor. Listen to the one voice that came from heaven. Listen to Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read them for yourself and make up your own mind. But the plea goes out. Because there is coming a day when the opportunity to respond will not be there. When that firefighter withdraws the ladder and the building collapses around you. And so I plead with you, if you're yet to trust Jesus, think about it. And, and make that decision today. And if you'd like to find out more, you know, we have a desk at the back that's got these little bags that have just information in them that might help you in that journey. Please feel free to grab one and, and have a read. And if you, uh, there's our cards in there. If you want to talk to us and uh, engage in more discussion and conversation, we would love to do that. Um, please feel free to contact us to do that. But I want to finish with just one last story. As the band comes and we, we conclude, the story was told of a guy who stole a car in California, true story, and the, the, the theft was reported to the police, but the police were a lot more urgent in trying to find this car thief. And they were sending out patrols everywhere, and in their desperation, they, they started putting notices on the radio saying, if you've stolen this car, can you please contact the police? Now, can you imagine how ludicrous that even sounds? But the reason for their urgency was that in the passenger seat, there were a box of biscuits that were laced with poison. The owner of the car had purchased those because he was wanting to use them to kill the rats in his house. And this thief had stolen this car, not knowing that death was right there. And if he was a car thief, it was only a matter of time before he thought about eating this guy's biscuits. 
And so they were sending out all these announcements. If you've stolen this car, please contact us. Please contact us because your life is on the line. That's kind of how the Bible talks about it. There's death right there. But Jesus came to say, but there's life in me because I have absorbed all of that death on myself. But that's only available for those who stand in me, stand behind me, trust in me, surrender their life to me. And so as the plea goes out, as my plea goes out, as the plea of the scriptures go out, I I pray and I hope that you hear it like the police trying to get the attention of a car thief. I don't want to freak you out, but there is that urgency. There's a lot at stake. Why don't you bow your heads? Why don't you just take a moment to close your eyes and just reflect? Maybe you're sitting there and you don't want to accept anything I've said, and that's okay. I'm glad you were here. and I hope that maybe something I said resonated with where you're at. Maybe you're here and, and you've been a part of our church community. You're a Christian, and, and maybe you need to hear the warnings that this writer is giving us as the people of God to not fall short of God's grace. Either by rejecting it, by turning away from it, by marginalizing it, by living carelessly. God's scrutiny continues over our hearts. And only our only hope is to stand in Christ and to walk in the fullness of His grace that not only saves us and forgives us, but empowers us to overcome sin. To resist the urge to go back to idols, to rely on ourselves and our good works and our righteousness and our church attendance and all of those things that we tell ourselves now are important to God. The benchmark hasn't changed. It's still holiness, but it's a holiness that we receive from Jesus because He makes us holy. And so in this moment, this sacred moment of reflection, if you need to make adjustments, if you need to repent, if you need to confess to God where you're at, I encourage you to do that. And if you're visiting with us or if you've been part of our church community and you're yet to make that decision to trust Jesus, and maybe today you're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit like those police coming through the radio calling you to respond. And if you'd like me to pray for you, I'd like you to just slip up your hand where you are and I'd love to include you in my closing prayer before the band leads us in a song. If you feel that God is talking to you and the Holy Spirit has really been convicting you and challenging you of where you're at and your need to trust in Jesus, I invite you to just slip up your hand and I'll pray with you. As I said, if you'd like to find out more, make sure you grab one of those bags at the end. And I'll be up the front here and our prayer team will come to pray for you, pray with you about anything you're going through. If you 
needing prayer for God to heal you, if you're in a financial need, or if you just want more of the Holy Spirit, more of God's presence, then come and we'd love to pray with you and pray for you. And if you'd like to talk to someone about where you're at with God, then I'd love to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions that you have. But I'm just gonna give you a moment to just still your heart, listen to the Holy Spirit, and then I'll pray and hand to Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.